And one of the ways that we show and can honor the Lord in that great love for the people of God is in the reading and preaching of the Word of God. So Hebrews 3 is our passage before us this afternoon as we study through this wonderful Christ-exalting book together. And today, uh, you see in the bulletin there, my sermon title is very simple. That's what I want to preach today. Consider Jesus. I'm just going to say that for an hour. That's what I'm going to proclaim today. Consider Jesus. That's what I want to convey. Follow with me as I read our text, Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. I heard the story of a of a park ranger. He was an old man. He worked at Yosemite. He worked at Yosemite even in his late 80s. He was still a park ranger each day working at Yosemite National Park. He had literally spent his life exploring and enjoying the breathtaking and the spectacular beauty of Yosemite. One day when he was on the job, a woman hurriedly came to him and she said, Sir, if you only had one hour to see Yosemite, what would you do if you only had one hour? And he slowly repeated her words, one hour. One hour to see all the beauty. And he thought for a little while, and then he said, Ma'am, if I only had one hour to see Yosemite, I would go to that log over there. I would sit down, and I would cry for the whole hour. Because he said, How could I consider such breathtaking beauty in just one hour? Consider the Christ who made Yosemite. How can we take in all of the beauty and all of the glory and all of the grandeur of Jesus Christ without gazing and without fixating and without contemplating and without marveling at this one who is altogether lovely in every possible way? So, how much time Did you spend this week marveling at the beauty of Christ? Were you captivated by the the glory of this Jesus? Did it happen this week? This month? Has, Has it been a while? Hebrews chapter 3 is the passage before us today where the author is going to call all of us to fix our eyes upon the one who is majestic. 
He is beautiful. He is good. He is great. He is full of splendor. He is everything good that you could ever, ever want. Now, Hebrews, as you know and remember, is a sermon. It was originally given as a sermon. It's called a word of exhortation, according to Hebrews 13, 22. And the anonymous author, whoever he was, we've called him Octor. In Latin, that means originator. Octor, he wants the, the Jewish audience, he wants his original hearers to cling to Jesus. He, he wants them to hold on to Jesus by faith. He wants them to persevere with Christ. And that's really the whole theme of the book of Hebrews. The theme is Hebrews chapter 1 verse 4. Jesus is better. He's better. He's he's better than everything you could ever want. He's better than everything that could ever satisfy you. In chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is better than the angels because he's God, chapter 1. And because he's man, chapter 2. And because he's Savior, he made propitiation. He quenched and absorbed the wrath of God. We looked at that last week. He is so good. He is better. He is worthy of your worship and my worship. He's better than the angels. Well, today... We come to chapter 3, and in this portion of the sermon, Octor is now going to make the point that Jesus is better than, hmm, who's one of the greatest Jewish figures that every Jew? Moses. Jesus is better than Moses. The greatest figure, the greatest Jew, the one who gave the people the law. Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. However, Octor, the preacher, loves his people so much, listen carefully, that he's going to give them a warning. Hebrews chapters 3 and into chapter 4 is a long warning in the sermon. It's a long warning. And chapter 2 was a warning. Remember that in verses 1 to 4? We must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift. And then in verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That's the first warning. Don't neglect the gospel or you're going to perish. The second warning is right here in chapters 3 and 4. It's like the author is a stellar preacher. He is a stellar preacher. He is constantly interweaving exposition and exhortation. Paul doesn't do that. You know what Paul does? He gives you doctrine, and then he says, therefore, here's how you live. He gives you doctrine, and then he tells you how to live for the rest of the book. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, that's what Paul does. The author here doesn't do that. He is constantly teaching, and then he gives application. And then he goes back to teaching, and then he gives application all throughout the sermon. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. That's what he wants you to do. He wants you to consider Jesus. But why? Why the warning? I mean, why is there a strong plea to action? Why does he exhort me and you to action? Now hear this carefully. 
Because some of those who were in the original audience, the church, when Octor was preaching, they were tempted to fall back and depart from Jesus because persecution was intensifying. They were tempted to abandon Jesus and go back to their Judaism. Man, following Jesus is too much. There's opposition, there's persecution, there's threats. This is a little too much. And they were tempted to go back to their Judaism. Persecution and opposition was growing. You know, should we stay with this Jesus? Should we remain here? It's hard. Should I keep going? Shall I remain with Jesus? Is it really worth it? To which the author says, oh, yes. Oh, yes, it is. I want you to hold fast to your confession. You see that in verse 6. Hold fast. That's what he wants of you. He's a great pastor. He's a great exhorter. He's a great preacher. We saw in chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus is better. We saw in chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention. We see chapter 3, verse 1, consider Jesus. Look at verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Look at verse 12 of chapter 3. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Chapter 4, verse 1. Let us fear if while a promise remains of entering the rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Verse 11 of chapter 4. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. I mean, here's a preacher who wants action. He wants you to hold fast. He wants you to be diligent. He wants you to cling. He wants you to believe. He wants you to follow. He wants action. So what we're going to look at for the next handful of weeks together in chapters 3 and 4 is really a lengthy warning section in the original sermon. It is a warning section. So let's begin in chapter 3, verse 1, and let's just look at verse 1 together. This is how Octor begins. Verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Therefore. Now, therefore goes back to chapter 2. Remember the one who is better than the angels because he became a man? Flesh and blood like me and you so that he can redeem us. And then we saw in chapter 2 that he's a merciful and faithful high priest and he makes propitiation. That means he satisfied the wrath of God for those who believe in him. Do you remember this? Do you see what he has done for you? Therefore, in light of that, what do you do? Consider Jesus. Now the word consider... I love this word. Word studies are so fun and they're so fascinating. The word in Greek means to fix your attention carefully on something. It means to settle your mind on something. Settle your mind on it. I like the NIV. It has a good translation here. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. That's actually pretty literal from the Greek. Fix your thoughts on on Jesus. The New Living Translation, think carefully about this Jesus. The Net Bible, take note of Jesus. 
or the ESV and NASB, consider Jesus. Now, as you're taking notes, jot down these key words, because the Greek idea here in this word with the imperative form, it conveys the following. Number one, it demands attention. You got to give attention to this. We, we cannot just lazily fix our eyes on Jesus. It demands attention. Second, it demands continuous observation. This isn't sort of a, yeah, I, I believed in him. I considered Jesus many years ago when I went to youth camp. No, this is an ongoing, continuous observation of Christ. Third, it also denotes urgency. Urgency. Whatever you're doing, make sure that you're considering Jesus. Whatever your job, profession, schooling, place of life, whatever your situation, don't neglect the consideration of Jesus. And fourth, it demands time. It demands time. We just can't quickly and hastily look at Jesus and then move on to bigger, better things. The, the idea in verse 1 is put your mind on Jesus and let your mind stay there. Now, I get that. I remember years ago when I was living in sunny Los Angeles, one day there was a group of ladies that were in the biblical counseling program that were moving into an apartment right across the hall from where I was living, and one of them was a stunningly beautiful young lady who parked her black truck, and she was a biblical counseling student at the Masters University, and we began to talk, and I I was hooked. I was hooked. I took note of her. I considered her. I thought carefully. I fixed my thoughts upon her. I mean, it wasn't a passing glance. It wasn't even a one-time observation. I was fixated, and I still am, on her. But Jesus is even greater. He's even greater. We understand that. We get those illustrations. We we, we understand the importance of fixing our eyes on Jesus. You remember Matthew chapter 14 when Jesus is walking on the water and Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, command that that I come out to you and walk on the water. And the Lord tells him to come. And as Peter is walking on the water, remember this? He took his eyes off of Jesus because he began to see the wind and he saw the waves and he began to sink. That's The example for us, don't take your eyes off Jesus. Don't be distracted away from Jesus or we will begin to sink. Peter, Peter modeled that. And we can relate to that. That has happened to us as well. Now, we need to consider Jesus. That's the main driving action in the whole section today. Consider Jesus. If you're taking notes, I want to give you seven rays of beauty why you are to consider Jesus. How do you consider Jesus? Okay, so I fix my thoughts on Jesus. How? Number one, consider him in his astonishing Godhood. In his Godhood, Jesus is God. All of the 
attributes of God, all of the perfections of God, all of the radiances of the glory of God. Jesus is all of it. Second, consider Jesus in his perfect offices. He is the prophet. He is our priest. And he is our king. This is our Jesus. Consider him in his astonishing godhood. Consider him in his perfect offices. Let me give you a third way that you can consider him. Consider Jesus in his unfathomable essence. In his essence. He is 100% truly God. He is infinite. He is eternal. He is really, genuinely the divine nature. This is amazing. Unfathomable essence. Fourth, consider Jesus in his relatable humanity. He's relatable to us. He's our brother. He's our friend. He's our helper. He's our priest. He's our captain. He's our guide. He's the one who knows us. He relates to us. He cares about us. Fifth, consider Jesus in his infinite perfection. Everything in Jesus is good. We could say it like this with John Calvin. There is no good outside of Jesus. He is all good, all beautiful, all dazzling, all satisfying. Everything and anything your soul could ever want is found in this Jesus. Number six, consider Jesus in his comforting promises. In his comforting promises, he's with you, he holds you, he'll never leave you, he'll guide you, he'll guard you, he'll carry you to heaven, he's all around you. This Jesus has given so many comforting promises to us. Consider Jesus, finally, number seven, in his singular atonement. In his singular atonement, he is all that you need to be accepted by God to go to heaven. He is your perfect righteousness. He is the one who died in the place of sinners, taking your sin and your shame and your guilt and your punishment. And then he rose from the dead triumphantly. He is your Savior who made atonement for your sins. Consider him. That's what Octor wants. Christian, consider him. Gaze upon him. Fix your thoughts upon this one and let your thoughts linger there. If we want to enjoy Jesus, we have to stay with him until we savor him. We must learn to linger with Jesus until we love him for all of his beauties. We want to entertain Christ in our thoughts until we are absolutely enthralled with his excellencies. Everything about Christ is so good, so great, so perfect. And that's what Octor wants the people to hear. Consider Jesus. Fix your thoughts there. Let your thoughts camp there. Put your mind on this Jesus and ponder him. For the rest of the passage... 
What Octor is going to do is he's going to give you two persuasive reasons to consider him. And that's our outline for the afternoon. Two persuasive reasons. And I want to keep it very simple. You can jot these down. The first reason that you should consider Jesus is because of who you are. The second reason that you should consider Jesus is because of who he is. And that's my outline for the rest of our time. Consider Jesus for two reasons, because of who you are and then because of who he is. Let's begin with verse one. Consider Jesus, number one, because of, because of who you are. Because of who you are. Now, I want you to look with me carefully at verse 1. I know we can read it and we can sort of fly over it, but notice how Octor is going to address the audience. He's going to remind the believers of who you really are. He wants you to know what Jesus has made you. Look, Jesus changes everything about you. He changes everything about you. He changes your identity. He changes your future. He changes your purpose. He changes your joy. He changes everything about you. Verse 1. Therefore, let's just stop on the word holy. You're holy. Christian, you're Holy. You're positionally made holy. You are set apart unto God. God has saved you. Jesus has propitiated the wrath of God. He is your high priest. He has come to make atonement for your sin. You are positionally set apart. You are holy, Christian. He made you holy. Second, he calls you brethren. Therefore, holy brethren. This is amazing because this teaches that if you're a Christian, you have a new family. You have a new family. God is your father. Christ is your brother. And all the saints are in the family with you. We're adopted into God's family. We are brethren. We saw in chapter 2, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. You're holy. You're brethren. And then third, he says that you are partakers of a heavenly calling. What does this mean? You have a new destination. You have a new citizenship. God has called you from heaven, and he is going to see you all the way to that destination in glory. You know what that means? That means that you have a new position, you have a new family, and you have a new citizenship. And then in verse 1, he says, Consider Jesus, who is the apostle and high priest of our confession. That's who we are. We confess Jesus as the apostle and high priest. What do you mean apostle? We all know that there were 12 apostles, Peter, James, and John, and Judas, and so on. That, That means sent ones. Of course, there were 12 apostles And there are many others who are sent ones. That might be every believer. We are ambassadors for God. That's me and you. But the ultimate sent one, the ultimate ambassador, the ultimate one with the message from God and the authority of God is none other than Jesus. Consider him the ultimate apostle, the sent one from God. And he is our high priest. Is he your high priest? 
Is he the one who has made propitiation for all of your sins? Have you been forgiven of your sins? Are you reconciled to God? Have you been made new by the blood of Christ? Can you say in verse one, this is true of me, that I have a new position. I have a new family. I have a new citizenship. I have a glorious savior. This is who I am. Not because of Jeff, not because of you, but all by his working. If this is not you today, you're lost. And you need to believe on Christ. If this is not you today, you need to consider Jesus by faith. If this is not you today, you need to believe upon Christ today. Consider Jesus because of who you are. Second, if you're taking notes, the second reason that Octor gives for me and you to consider Jesus, not only because of who you are, number two, but because of who he is. Because of who he is. Now, this is verses two to six. Now, let me tell you sort of big picture what the author is doing. These verses are a comparison and a contrast of Moses and Jesus. There's no belittling of Moses here. There's no negative action of Moses. Not like Moses did anything wrong here. There's no criticizing of Moses. Moses was a great man. He was a wonderfully great man. He was the great prophet of Israel. He brought Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea. He was the giver of the law to the people of Israel. He instituted the tabernacle and the whole worship system in Israel. He guided them through the desert to the edge of the promised land. He died at 120 years of age. Here is a leader of all leaders who led, guided, prayed and delivered God's people. Moses was a great man of God. Not perfect, but he was a great man of God. Interestingly, if we're going to understand this a little bit more in the culture, Jewish rabbis taught that Jesus, that Moses was the greatest prophet and leader and teacher who had ever lived. Even the Torah scholar in the Middle Ages, he goes by Rambam, he gave 13 Jewish principles of faith. One of the Jewish principles is this, quote, we must believe that Moses' prophecies are true and that he is the greatest of all of the prophets, end of quote. Even Rambam and many of the Jewish rabbis called Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses our rabbi, he is our teacher. He is our leader. But, but in John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip said to Nathanael, We have found the one whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, namely Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In John 5, 46, Jesus said, If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for Moses wrote of me. In Luke 24, 27, Jesus said, beginning with Moses, he began to preach the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Look, Moses was great, but Jesus is greater. Moses was faithful, but Jesus is greater. But there's a couple of differences, a couple of differences that we want to work through together in the few minutes that we have. 
Moses, in verses 2 to 4, we're going to see here, Moses is in the house, part of God's people, but Jesus is over the house as the builder of God's people. Look at verse 2. Notice carefully in your Bible. Follow with me. He, this is Jesus, he was faithful to him who appointed him, just like Moses also was in all his house. Verse 3, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Don't miss just the simple comparison in these verses here. Moses is part of the people of God, but Jesus is the creator of the people of God. Because Jesus, verse 4, is God. He's God. Jesus was faithful to God who appointed him, and certainly Moses was as well. But Jesus has more honor and more glory than Moses. If you look at verses 3 and 4, it's just a simple comparison. Look, the builder has more honor than the house itself. And verse 4 even tells us that the builder of all things is God. What is the implication? Jesus is God. He's the builder. He made Moses. Of course, he's better than Moses. Okay, so I'll illustrate it like this. Imagine if you've got a couple of people in a room and they're triathlon contestants. And they're all gathered together in a room one night bragging about who's better than the next and who's the best and who's the fastest athlete. And one of them says, you know, I swam faster than anyone else. I'm the greatest of the triathlon contestants. And another one in the room said, yeah, I cycled quicker than anyone else. I'm the greatest out of all the athletes. And then the third athlete in the room said, well, I ran faster than everyone else. I'm, I am certainly the greatest of all of the contestants. And eventually they all point the finger to Jesus, who's sitting calmly in the corner, and they say, well, what about you? And Jesus very calmly said, I made all of you. Of course I'm the greatest. I made all of you. Look, Moses is great. He's in the house. But the point of these verses is that Jesus is over the house. He made the house. What glory, what grandeur, what a God that Jesus is. Verse 4, he's the builder of all things. I think the implication of these verses is that the builder of all things is God, namely Jesus. Moses, no doubt, was great in the house. But Jesus, he's over. He's over the house. But there's another comparison. And there's another section that we need to understand in verses 5 and 6. Look at it with me. Moses is a servant in God's house. But now in verses 5 and 6, Jesus is God's very own son over the house. He's not a servant, just a servant. He's over the house is the son. Look at verse 5. Now, Moses was faithful in all his house. Octor is quoting Numbers 12 that we read earlier. 
He was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of the things which would be spoken later. But Christ is faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. I mean, don't miss this. Moses was a servant and he was a great one. And he was a faithful one. That's what Numbers chapter 12, verse 7 says. It's God's very own testimony about Moses. He is faithful in all my house. He was faithful, dignified, royal, and obedient in what God called him to do. But he was a servant. He was a servant in the house of God. He was not the son. Moses was not the heir. Moses was a great servant. But Jesus is even greater as the son Let me illustrate it like this. Imagine if you go to England and you visit a royal residence in England and someone is there of great royalty and great wealth and great honor and you're excited to visit them. It's a massive house, a massive castle, a massive estate, massive fence. You finally work your way to the front door. And you knock on the door, and there the door, that huge door of the castle opens up, and you're met by a servant. And the servant greets you, and he shakes your hand, and he brings you into the castle. But the servant is not the owner of the house. The servant may be nice. The servant may do his job well. The servant may be very respectful, and he may be very obedient, and he may be very dutiful. But the servant is not the one that you're there to see. You want to see the heir. I want to see the son. I want to see the one who owns it all. The servant who opened the door might be great. He might be faithful. He might be dutiful. He might discharge his duty well. But he's not the ultimate one that I want to see. Well, that's Moses. He was the servant in the house. It's not belittling the role. It's not saying that he did anything wrong. It's just saying you don't really want to fix your eyes on the servant. You want to see the son. You want to see the heir. You want to see the one who's over the house and over the estate and over the residence. You want to see that one. Verse Look at it there in your Bible. Moses was faithful. Don't miss the preposition in the house as a servant. Oh, Moses was faithful, but he was in the house. And he's a servant, a faithful one in the house. For a testimony of the things which were to be spoken later. What does that mean? Moses talked about a greater prophet to come who would give God's word. You got to listen to him. He talked about the Messiah that would come later. Verse 6, but Christ was faithful as a son, don't miss the preposition, over the house. Moses is in the house as a servant. Jesus is over the house as the son. And then an amazing little phrase. Everybody look at verse 6, right in the middle of the verse. Jesus is a son over his house. And then this little phrase, whose house we are. We're in a building right now with brick, stone, but the house of God is not a building. 
It's not mortar and buildings and places and venues. According to verse 6, the house of God is the people whose house we are. We, the people, are the household of God. So don't miss the massive implications of this. In the church, we, as the church, Jesus Christ dwells. He dwells among his people. Now, we know from 1 Corinthians 6 that the Spirit of God dwells in individual Christians. But, but we are also, we understand, we are being built together into a dwelling of God. And the Spirit of God dwells in us corporately as a church as well. Not just individually, that's true, but also corporately as believers. Do you see that? Jesus is faithful as a son over the house. By the way, we are his house. 1 Timothy 3.15, how how one should conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. 1 Corinthians 3.9, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. In 1 Peter 2.5, you are living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Take your Bible and just turn back a little bit to Ephesians 2. Let me read something with you here. Now, as you're turning back to Ephesians 2, what I want to show you is truth about the building, the household of God. This is who we are as believers. Ephesians chapter 2 Let's begin in verse 18, Ephesians 2, 18, for through Christ, we both, that is Jew and Gentile, we have our access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and you are of God's household. Do you see that? We are of God's household. Now look at verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Jesus is the cornerstone, and then he taught the apostles, and they are the foundation in the church, verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also, you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Do you see the implications of all of this? That we are the household of God. Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus is the son over the house. And we are the household of God. Imagine the love and the involvement and the service and the membership and the accountability and the loyalty that we have to one another. We are the household of God. Spurgeon was teaching on this, and he said to his church, do you realize that you are the house of Christ? He said, do you realize that Jesus is in the midst of us? He said, how clean must we be? And then he said, how heavenly must we be? How fixated on him must we be? How pure must we be? How thankful must we be? How loving must we be? In this house of God, no rival should be permitted. We are the house of God. 
We, we love one another. We consider Jesus together. You know, we meet on Sunday, we meet on Wednesday, care groups, discipleship, and these are great times of edification and strengthening. But you know what? Life is not always like that now. It will in heaven be like that forever, but not now. Because when you leave the gathering of the saints, guess what? You leave to go be missionaries all week long. And by the end of the week, you're beat up. And you think this world is a mess. I need the people of God. I need the saints. I need the house of God. And then you gather and we're refreshed and we're equipped and we're taught and we're strengthened. And then we leave and we scatter and we evangelize. And we proclaim the gospel. And then guess what? We're beat up again. And and you know what? It's crazy out there. And we come back together for strengthening, for help, for refocus. That's the beauty of the house of God. What's Octor doing? He has made the whole point in verse 1. You must consider Jesus. Fix your thoughts upon him. Why? Moses was in the house, but Jesus is over the house as the builder. Jesus made it all. Jesus is God. Fix your eyes upon him. Moses. Moses is one of us. He's like a servant in the house. But Jesus. Jesus is the Son. He's the Lord. He is the head. He is the sovereign one over the house. Implication. Don't, don't drift. Don't drift away from this Jesus. Don't don't drift into unbelief. Don't drift into apathy. Don't drift into sermon hearing only. Don't drift into Christlessness. Don't drift. Consider him. Do you see? In verse 6. There's a phrase that we need to deal with before we conclude here in a moment. And it's the if clause. Do you see verse 6? We are God's house if, if we hold fast. Our, does that mean that salvation is by your works? That, that I'm in the house of God if I do good works? Well, no. No book in the Bible is going to point us to the glorious work of our high priest more than Hebrews. He paid it all. But verse 6 is teaching, you know that you're in God's house. Listen carefully. If you hold fast. God demands your loyalty and he demands your perseverance. The Bible teaches that we must hold firmly to Christ. We must hold fast to Christ. We must hold on to Christ. We must cling to Jesus Christ. Let me give you a few scriptures on this. Hebrews 10 We read in verse 38, my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but we are those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Jesus said in John chapter 15, when he is the vine and we are the branches, 
In John chapter 15, verse 8, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Paul writes to the Colossian believers, and in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, Paul says, And though you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, God has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Second John. Second John verse nine says the same thing. When second John nine says anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, he doesn't have God. But the one who abides in the teaching, he has both the father and the son. What is Octor saying to the original audience? He says perseverance is the mark of the child of God. You got to hold on to Jesus. You got to cling to Jesus. Why? Because temporary Christians are not really Christians at all. Or maybe to simplify it, proof comes through perseverance. You prove that your faith is genuine by holding firm to Jesus Christ until the very end. But we all say, yeah, but, but, but I know someone who prayed that prayer. I know someone they used to go to church. I know someone they made a decision for Jesus. Where are they now? Well, nowhere to be found. First John tells us in chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. I mean, boys and girls, it's a good question for you as well. How do you know that your faith is genuine? Maybe men and women, you've asked, how do I know if I'm predestined? How do I know if God has elected me? How do I know if I've been justified? How do I know if I've been called? How do I know that I'm really a believer? Isn't it amazing that verse 6 does not say we know that we're the house of God if we pray to prayer? Or we raised a hand or signed a card or walked an aisle or had this feeling or had this experience or used to go to church or went to church camp, accepted Jesus, invited him into my heart. I mean, on and on we could go. The proof of following Jesus, listen carefully, is not something that you did in the past. The proof in the Bible that you are really following Jesus is that right now you're still holding on to Jesus. That's the proof. You say, well, how can I do that? I had a terrible week. Well, thankfully, all those whom God chooses, he preserves you. And he's the one who carries you. And he's the one who began a good work and he will perfect that 
good work. So it needs to be said, temporary, fake, non-genuine Christians can easily make a short-term show in the flesh. They can, like Jesus said, sprout up for a little while when they hear the word of God, but then they vanish and fall away when times get tough. There are some people who make professions of faith, but they're only temporary, showing that they were never really saved to begin with. There are some who had experiences, but then they turned away for a long period of time, and they show that their faith really wasn't genuine to begin with. Some have feelings, some have emotions, but then they fall away, showing that their faith was fickle, built on emotion, not on Christ. Some people make decisions, but then they fall away showing that they picked God when it was convenient for them, but trials drove them away, showing that they really never had genuine faith to begin with. What is Octor doing in chapter 3? Consider Jesus. He's better. He's greater. He's better than Moses. He is over the house. You're in the house. We are the people of God. Jesus is over the house of God. Hold on to him. Cling to him. Often I'll tell my kids if they might say, well, daddy, I believe in Jesus. As a father or mother, who wouldn't want to hear that? But I can't give them the assurance that they're saved. It's not my role to do that. It's not for any of us to say, I know that you're a Christian. That's not our job. That's the work of the Holy Spirit to testify with their spirit, Romans 8. So what do you say, parent, grandparent, friend? What do you say? That is awesome to hear. Keep following Jesus. Because the proof that you genuinely believe is that you persevere. The proof that you are genuinely converted is that you persevere. True faith endures. True Christians cling to Christ. True Christians endure to the end. Not because I have such a great grip on Jesus, get this, but because he has such a great grip on me. So are you abiding in Christ today? Are you persevering in this Christ today? The Bible does not focus on the experience that you had 10 years ago. It's not asking whether you prayed a prayer some time back. Find all of that, but that's not proof that you're born again. The proof is, are you abiding? Are you remaining in Christ? And that's chapter 3, verse 6. If we hold fast our confidence, we have boldness, we have courage with Jesus, and we have boast. We can boast in our hope all the way till the end, because our hope is found in Jesus. Consider him. He's better. You know, before I I close, we have to acknowledge that maybe you here today are like me and you're probably not tempted to highly esteem and honor Moses above Jesus. That it just might not be your temptation. But, But what is 
that one thing that you so highly esteem in your life? What what is that one thing that you so highly think about that you think, man, that would be awesome to have that. Or, Or that would be awesome to be that. If I had that respect, if I had that position, if I had that power, if I had this promotion, if, if I had that place, if I, if I have this possession, if, if I have this reputation, if I only had it, that would be awesome. What's that one thing? If I only had that relationship, if I only had that person, I'd have everything. Jesus is better. He's better. He's better than it all. So the implication then that Octor is saying is, believe him, trust him, rely on him, study him, hear him, submit to him, confess him, cling to him, consider him, wait for his return. He's coming soon. What must You do consider, consider Jesus. When we come together next week, Octor is going to tell us how important it is for you to take action today. Don't wait till tomorrow. Do it today. Consider Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given such a powerful, powerful portion of your word in the precious, the precious book of Hebrews. Oh, how we love it, how we are thankful for your word. And we pray that you would mercifully help us, even in our conversations one with another this afternoon as we are going from here, that we would consider Jesus and encourage one another to consider Jesus. And over the dinner and the car ride and as we're getting ready for bed, that we would consider Jesus. He is so great. He is so worthy of worship, altogether lovely and full of all goodness. We worship and praise him. In Jesus' name, amen.